of all the podcasts and all the platforms and all the internet, you walked into ours. Yeah, this is the first episode of 2023, the start of our Humphrey Bogart month, which I'm very excited to start on. Same. Humphrey Bogart, to me, feels like one of those classic Hollywood actors that I only know, like, two films from. I know Treasure of the Sierra Madre and Casablanca, and that's it. And in this month, we're going to be talking about four of his films, mm-hmm. and I think you've only seen two, right? I think so. Um, I mean, it's going to be interesting once we get into it, but right now, we're going to be talking about his most famous film. Most famous, most iconic, one of my all-time favorites. Number three on the AFI Top 100 Films of All Time. Yeah, and I think it's in the top 30 of the Sight and Sound 100 of all time. Uh, it's it's Casablanca, for those who don't know it. Yes. Also turning 81 years this month. Really? 81? Yeah. And, you know, during the the time frame of this movie, it's also December. So would this make Casablanca a Christmas movie? No. They already got Die Hard. They're not taking Casablanca. I guess. We'll let them have Die Hard. But yeah, so um, Casablanca is like the classic Hollywood film. It, I think it's the movie, if you wanted to ask what's a golden age Hollywood film, you would show somebody like this, Gone with the Wind, um, Singing in the Rain, Wizard of Oz. Like the, Those are your category of classic Hollywood films, right? Classic Hollywood, golden age of Hollywood. This is, you know, the creme de la creme of golden Hollywood films. Yeah, and I... I've always been kind of fascinated with Casablanca as it's kind of been ordained as the top end of the classical Hollywood Mm -hmm. studio system. Like, this is what old Hollywood could do. Because the movie in and of itself is a pretty bare-bones movie. Like, there's not a lot of of action in it. It's a very talky movie. It's not even... Like, it sets itself up as a little bit of, like, a political thriller, but it's not that kind of like thrillery movie and it was also filmed during the second world war so and which which is also another thing because the whole theme of the movie is like imploring america to be more involved in the european theater when we're already there yeah and it was a thing where it kind of got pushed to being made because all the studios wanted to do these big epic war movies to kind of promote hey this is going on in the world we want to show our patriotism so Let's make Casablanca. I mean, that's a really interesting fact of this being a movie kind of pushed forward to as a propaganda piece, uh, because that's essentially what it's trying to be in its themes, because I know this was also coming out with, like, Frank Capra's Why We Fight, yeah. which is another, like, American propaganda piece where, hey, guys, we're going into war. Let's let's get this going. We need We need people on board and moving through. It's like Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yeah. was a big patriotic musical like come on boys be proud to be americans and go off and fight the the germans over there and it was a thing where even warner of you know warner brothers where this was filmed at you know he was going places and making speeches and trying to promote you know supporting our troops and you know helping people out that are being affected by the war so you know it's interesting to see how this movie comes to be and showing basically the process because in Casablanca, we have a bunch of people that are fleeing from Nazi Germany, and they're trying to, you know, get flights out. They're trying to hawk jewelry and do whatever they can to get to the States. And that's very much factual to history, because Casablanca was a stop on the way 
that people would make to Lisbon to get to the United States. Yeah, and I think that's the interesting thing, is the movie does kind of work as a uh, time capsule of, like, American politics at the time, how, like, the world kind of worked at the mm-hmm. time, because, you know, Germany was stomping across Europe, and it is true that everyone was trying to find a way out and get to America. Yeah. Or just, like, anywhere that was not Europe. Mm-hmm. And I think the movie is kind of fascinating in that sense that it's so... Um, that it's so ingrained in that idea because I know the writers of it pretty much experienced it. Yeah. Because I know they went over into Germany in like the mid or late 1930s, like before the war broke out. Mm -hmm. And they saw how so many people in Europe were trying to basically buy their passage out Mm -hmm. and how that kind of world worked. Before we go on, I should probably tell everyone what the movie's about. You know, if, if, if you don't know. If you don't know, um, do we have the back of the box? I, I, actually, I actually do. I actually have the actual box uh, Sweet. right here. Uh, okay, so here it is. Um, real quick. The romantic lover's triangle between the impossibly heroic Czech resistance fighter, Victor Laszlo, his beautiful wife, Ilsa, and her ex-lover, the cynical American, Rick. But this triangle is the hinge that the movie sets on as our club-owning expatriate Rick must decide whether or not to let the love of his life and her fugitive husband escape the Nazis in French Morocco and out of his life forever. You know, as time goes by. Yeah, yeah, as, as time goes by. Time, time goes by. It does. It, it do that. It, it be. It, it be, yes. It, it do. It do. In, indeed. Indubitably. Um, yeah, so Casablanca. Yes. Um, since we're talking about As Time Goes By, you know, the score was by Max Steiner, did a whole bunch of, you know, really epic scores and, you know, old Hollywood films. Actually, As Time Goes By wasn't written by him. It was actually written for the stage play that was never produced officially for this film. But that song really does tell a lot of what the movie is trying to do and impart on you is that Ilsa and Rick have this melancholy romance that it's kind of doomed. It can never really work Mm -hmm. out. And it's a really kind of sad state of affairs because you want them to get together, but you kind of know they can't get together. It's like Vertigo. The music is so beautiful and just breaks your heart and you want these two characters to be together and they can never be. I'm, that's just you. Like, Scotty is an insane person in Vertigo. Well, yeah, by the end, because she drives him crazy. That is not a healthy way to oh, start no. your relationship. No, no, it is not. But it's just, you know, another story where you want the characters to be together and you know they can't. And it's just, it's so frustrating, but you understand it at the same time. Yeah, I mean, like I think that is the beauty of Casablanca is how it's working on this really, like, just universal basic theme of the love triangle yeah you know oh i'm in love with this person but i can't ever like act on that Mm because that person is with somebody else and yada 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 uh but other than you know that casablanca is also about nazis and and like how america should go and fight the nazis yeah i mean there's some action in the beginning we have Peter Lore, who's out there killing, you know, German spies. So so he can turn a buck, yes. And yeah. He's also German, yes, yes. Yeah, so I mean, there's just a lot going on in this movie, and not just the love triangle. 
yeah, I think that's the real kind of brilliance of the movie is it hangs its hat on this melodrama. This, like, you know, crossed lovers and this, you know, love triangle. It, it hangs its hat on that. But in the background is this political drama, this, like, pseudo-spy thriller going mm-hmm. on with Laszlo and the underground and how um, uh, Claude Rains' character is this corrupt police official and he's kind of shysting I mean, I, I love every scene that Claude Rains is in. When, especially, I think my favorite scene is when he shuts down the cafe because... Oh, sir, you're winnings. Yeah, yeah, he shuts down the cafe because um, the, the the Nazis, the Nazi, you know, the Third Reich guy, whatever his name is. That is uh, Caesar from Counter Dr. Caligari. He is one of the most uh, famous um, actors in cinema history. But what's his character's name? Uh, I know his, Conrad Veidt. Conrad Veidt. Uh, I believe he is uh, fucking... Major Heinrich Strasser? 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 Sure, we'll go with that. Yeah, so, so don't call me on character names. You know I don't know these things. Yeah, so, I mean, that that has to be my favorite scene where he's asking Claude Rains, you gotta shut down the cafe right now, and he shuts it down for gambling. And, you know, he's telling everyone, get out! And someone says, you know, oh, Captain, you're winnings. Oh, thank you! And puts him in his pocket, and he's like, you know, everyone, get out! Get out! I think and, that's the thing about Claude Rains, is he steals every scene he's in. Oh, and yeah. This is, and this is a movie with Humphrey Bogart, Peter Lore, Ingrid Bergman, like, the... With noted great actors of cinema, and Claude Rains is, again, the best supporting actor to have ever done it. He steals every scene he's in. He's, like, the best part of any, like, interaction. He makes all the, like, kind of, like, not dated dialogue, but, like, classic dialogue of these Hollywood films really sing. Yeah. You know, and that that goes to, like, everyone in this. I think this is one of those perfect casts. Like, in Back to the Future. Like, I think Back to the Future is a perfect cast. Like, yeah. there's no one in that movie that you could replace with another actor and it would be as good. It no. Is, it is the best it can be. This is the same thing. I can't see anyone else playing these roles. Like, I can't see a Henry Fonda type playing Rick. No. I can't see Jimmy Stewart playing Rick. I can't see James Cagney playing Rick. I can only see Humphrey Bogart playing Rick. I mean, there were these weird rumors that Ronald Reagan was supposed to be Rick. I don't know how that got shopped around, but people were saying, oh yeah, it was supposed to be Reagan and someone else was supposed to be Ilsa. And no one could really find where that started or where it came to be. But I was like, yeah, you know, Reagan was a good actor, but he didn't have uh-huh. he didn't have the Bogart, you know, this is where you need, like, oh, he's the tough guy that owns the cafe, doesn't really hang out with the customers. You know, he's all about just him, and then we see who Bogart, or, you know, we see who Rick really is once Ilsa steps into the picture, and he's helping people. He helps the young couple. You are very kind telling me that uh, Ronald Reagan was a good actor. But he he was, was a adequate actor at best. <laughs> well, he was cute. Young Ronald Reagan was cute. Yeah, yeah, we know, we know. Yeah. I feel like we could do like a, a shop list of a- actors you wouldn't think the boo finds cute, but there's a lot of them. But like really young Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Really. That's why I was kind of like, like you were saying, this cast is perfect. Mm. And, you know, down to, you know, people that we just see for a fraction of time, like Peter Lore, it's like, I can't think of anyone replacing him and being, you know, someone else for that character. Well, the thing is, is Peter Lore is so good at playing a scumbag. Mm-hmm. 
he is he might be the best scumbag in cinema like at least this stage of cinema like because with everyone in this cast even the small roles they all work and it's the other thing like ingrid bergman i cannot think of another actress that would be as good as ingrid bergman because she is like i think she's swedish she is she's swedish yeah and so she already comes in with that built-in like like accent and how she acts and it's not american and it does feel like oh these are people that met in france they these yeah. are this is an expatriate and a and a woman of a foreign land and they meet and fall in love in this whirlwind romance and i think that goes into kind of the theming of the movie because i think i'm pretty sure humphrey bogart's the only actual american actor in a speaking role in this movie i think so him dooley wilson and there's another actor there were like only three american actors in this movie yeah because because like um rick that's that's pretty obvious mm-hmm. dooley wilson he plays sam which mm-hmm. obviously there uh but i i don't think there's anyone else oh maybe um joy page right because she was the yeah. the girl yeah that rick um kind of helps because renault is getting a little little too uh mm-hmm. too weinstein over there trying to get them papers but, but uh, um i think that goes in with the themes because since they're the only americans and the whole film is basically hinged on the americans have to get involved to defeat the nazis mm-hmm. that's that's literally like the, the movie's point is hey america i know it's hard out there rationing's hard you know getting by in these nine to five times but we gotta go over there and fight the good fight you know yeah and flags and beat the nazis i mean a big part of that too was you know also set design the only thing that was actually made for this movie was rick's cafe everything else was borrowed from warner brothers because a lot of stuff from warner brothers was being sent out to the war effort Mm -hmm. so it was this thing where they were like okay we really got to get this cafe down and looking beautiful and everything else is going to go, you know, boards, metal, whatever we can. It's going to get sent out to help these people, you know, with the war. But uh, an interesting when we're talking about, you know, the Americans and people from other countries in this film, uh, Ingrid Bergman, you know, kind uh, of. Yes, the pretty one. Yes. She uh, actually struggled with, you know, taking this role on because. She is Swedish, and she was kind of worried, okay, I'm doing this, you know, film against Nazis. What if they go after me or the people of my country? Well, and it I'd was... i afraid if they go after her family, they're still over that, Europe. That, too. So her and uh, Paul Heinrich, because he's also... Uh, I forget where what part of the world he's from. I don't know. If, I don't think he's from Sweden. Uh, he's Austrian-British-American. Yeah, he's Austrian, so... It was just this thing of, you know... Would it be hard for the Nazis to probably find his cousins? Yeah, so it was... It's kind of interesting to see it in that light, you know, compared to, oh, I don't want to be typecast versus, no, these people might actually go after me or my family and kill them because I took on a movie role. And it kind of goes with their characters in the movie where, you know, they're putting up the good fight for the little guys against the, the big enemy that's coming after them. Yeah, and man, like, I'm again, I'm looking at this cast because we have it pulled up over here, right? And it's one of those things where a lot of these, a lot of these actors were seeing, it's like, kind of insane how good they are. Yeah. Because basically everyone in this list is, 
are people that would go on to have like insanely like memorable mm-hmm. careers. Like Peter Lore is in like M. He's in this. He's in, he's in like all those like um Roger Corman Poe movies. Arsenic and Old Lace. Arsenic and Old Lace. Um Humphrey Bogart's like again one of the classic Hollywood mm-hmm. you know leading man who's the the gruff you know angry guy. Yeah. Ingrid Bergman, as again, I said, she's the pretty one. Yeah. She's the pretty one of, you know, at least 30 years of Hollywood. But also a very talented actress. Incredibly talented actress. And, like, we have Claude Rains in here, Conrad Vieck. Like, there's, like, really good people in this movie. But um, I wanted to ask you, who is your, like, standout? You know, who's the... Because I know we mentioned Claude Rains because he steals every scene he's in. But... Putting Claude Rains aside, the MVP of all supporting actors in Hollywood, who is your standout in this in this movie? Who's your favorite? <sighs> I mean, for the longest time, you know, it was Rick because, you know, it it's Bogey. He is, you know, this heartbroken, and you know, I'm just, you know, I have. Um, you have your, you have a thing for uh, heartbroken emo boys in the 1940s. I do. It's just you know, don't get too close to me. I've been hurt too many times. I can't go through it again. Oh my god! I, Rick I, is an emo boy. He is. Why he, God? He's spoken to me for such a long time. But Sam, don't play Mad World. You can play it for her. You can play it for me. No, we're gonna listen to Mike Kim. Oh God, Rick would be somebody who would listen to My Chemical Romance when he said. No, I don't think he would. Yeah, uh, he's sitting there. He's like, Sam, play Black Parade just for me, please. <sighs> so bad. Then so you bad. hear that middle C on the the piano. Fuck yeah. <sighs> so bad. I fucking hate my chem. I love them so much. Uh, but yeah. Um, um, I think my standout has to be Ingrid Bergman in the movie. She okay. I had always thought that she had a lot smaller role than she did because mm-hmm. I. I'd, thing i mentioned i haven't seen casablanca in a long time you said what like 10 years uh, at least something like that and even when i saw it i was probably like on tv yeah uh but i remember this was being the humphrey bogart movie like yeah. that was his, it was his show yeah but she is way more of like a driving force and a motivated character and like she pulls a fucking gun on rick and is yeah. like yeah i love you but i will i'll shoot you because i need to like get the fuck out of casablanca and it's like, and she can't, but she wants to, and it's, but she's like still in love with him. And it's a really powerful performance out of her. And it's not even a selfish reason of, you know, her getting out of Casablanca. It's, I need to get these letters out of here to help more people. And it's just, I, that's why I, you know, watching it again, it's like, I love her character so much because she's just good. She's doing good. I mean... You know, when her and Rick are together and you could see the signs where they're not going to end up together and he's not seeing it and it's just tearing her apart and she's just trying to, you know, keep it together because she doesn't want to break his heart. I mean, as soon as you understand who uh, Victor Laszlo is and what he actually is, because, you know, she's talking about it and she's saying oh laszlo he he saved me he's made me better than i am and all these other things and he she builds him up as this great human mm-hmm. being right but we never really get to see him be that great human being really we see him get to play a little bit of spycraft and then a yeah. little bit of him running away from the nazis but like we don't really see him as what what El- he's described El- today yeah, what else envisions yeah 
And I think that's interesting because I think that sets up for us as the audience to just always be on Rick's side. Mm -hmm. And then when we see Rick say, yeah, no, he he isn't as good as Elsa thinks he is. Mm -hmm. But with Elsa, he might be. Yeah. And that's why he lets her go. And I think that's a really poignant thing where he decides to do the greater good. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I like this movie. This is, yeah. Me too. It it breaks my heart every time, but it's just, it's so good. What do you mean? You get a buddy cop thing going on at the end. Yeah. Hey, Renault, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Which, I'm surprised there was no buddy cop sequel. No. I know there was an alternate ending for this movie that never got shot, I guess, because it went over budget. Mm-hmm. Where it was the two of them uh, storming into Africa to, like, liberate, like, villages against the Nazis. Like, that that's, like, an actual thing huh. that was, that was going to be the actual ending. And Jack Warner was like, you're over budget and it would ruin the ending. So, it's not happening. Yeah, I, I think the ending is perfect the way that it is. It's strong. Strong ending. Pretty good ending. You know, three out of five. Solid, you know. I'm going to go with uh, 4.5 out of five. Could could be better. Could could be better. You know, Laszlo could have left and Elsa could have stayed with Rick forever and they could have been happy. But that would have, like, totally gone against what the whole movie is. (sighs) I know. That's why I give it 4.5 out of five. But um, speaking of sequels that should never happen, I know this movie... Because we God. talked about this um, before we started recording. Because there is, like, like people have this assumption that classic works of cinema never got defiled by the business side of cinema. Yeah. Where it's like, I can't believe they're gonna remake uh, or remake Indiana Jones or anything like that. Oh, they would never do that to other great movies. I'm like, there's five Jaws sequels. No, but I mean, also of this time era, there's, like, the Thin Man movies. Oh, there's like fucking a dozen of them. But you have like at least the the main leads that come back for the sequels. So you get like the thin man and then they get married and then they have the baby. So you see the progression of time. Yeah. And it's more or less the same cast. So you don't feel like, oh, wow, they just really tore it apart in the second sequel. Well, or the I mean, third, and I get what you mean by that, and I know like the Jaws movies, like only the yeah. only the wife character came back for any of the sequels. I know Michael Caine's in the fourth one, but there's also stuff like there's Return to Oz, mm-hmm. like a sequel to Wizard of Oz, and it's like that's a great movie. Why is there sequels to that? Need I go on with Godfather Part Three, or or like all these movies where oh those are classic great works of cinema, and they all have sequels. How is it that Casablanca dodged that bullet? It doesn't need it. I know it doesn't need it, but Jaws didn't need a sequel either. I agree. That did not need a sequel either. It didn't need five of them. It did not. I'm wondering how the Hollywood machine just passed over Casablanca. Because the ending kind of sets up for a sequel. It sets up, but it also, you know, kind of leaves you to your own imagination. You know, one of these films where we don't really get closure, which would piss me off because I love having, you know, closure. But, you know, for this movie, I like to envision Ilsa and Laszlo go off and they continue to do more good. And Rick and the captain are there in Casablanca and they continue to help more people escape. So it really lets you kind of be creative in your own way. But we did have uh, Humphrey Bogart, Ingrid Bergman. And Paul Heinrich, you know, actually reprised their roles of their characters from this movie. 
Oh, I, I know this one. It was for like some BBC radio broadcast or something like that? Yeah, it was for CBS. Okay. And it was the Screen Guild Players and it was a war benefit show in April of 1943. So it, it's interesting. It was kind of like Rebecca where the actors came back and they reprised their roles, you know, for radio and in this instance to help, you know, war efforts. Well, that was a thing that I don't know if a lot of people realize about kind of this era of Hollywood was there, there wasn't TV, right? And no. you couldn't like show a movie on TV to make, to like syndicate it and make more money. Like, movies would play in a theater for, you know, six months to a year, however long they would play. But if you wanted to like get it out to the people, you would sell these like radio shows to like these radio people and they would do the radio plays and performances and it's a it's a lost art that doesn't exist in america anymore no but in england it's a huge thing they still do yeah. doctor who radio plays over there oh yeah um, some of them are pretty good but that's like a just a fascinating thing um that sort of a relic of old hollywood but again the sequel thing because i know <laughs> i know there has to be at least one attempt that they tried to make one well there's two there's two? There's two. There's the one that we were discussing and we'll talk about right now. But there's one that they officially consider a sequel to this movie. Uh-huh. And it was a book that came out in the 90s. And I think it's As Time Goes By. And that's supposed to be like the true sequel to what happens after this film. Really? So I'm going to see if I could hunt down the book, kind of figure out what happens in that. And maybe judge for myself if I'm content with that being a continuation, a continuation or... I'm just going to keep, you know, Casablanca the way it is in my heart. I, I'd i say this pro- movie probably, again, as you said, doesn't need a sequel. But I am very interested to see what the rights owners would consider a worthy sequel. Yeah. Um, But the other one that we kind of mentioned. Which was a surprise to me because I love this movie. I try to watch documentaries about the making of this movie whenever I can. But I was completely floored when I saw this, and I don't know if this is something that you'd known for a while, or this was brand new to you, too. Uh, I will say that this was also a surprise, because, again, I'm always under the assumption there was a sequel to Casablanca that I just didn't know about, or there was an attempt to make one that just never went through. Yeah. But I was surprised at who was connected to this one. So yeah. Are you going to play um, Ilsa? So in the early 2000s, Madonna had the idea that she wanted to, I think, remake the film. Yeah, ma- remake the film with her being Ilsa and Ashton Kutcher being Rick. Wait, I didn't know about Ashton Kutcher. Uh-huh. Ashton Kutcher as Rick. I mean, I love Ashton Kutcher, but I'm just like... I mean, early 2000s, it's Ashton Kutcher. I mean, that's like the top end of his star power, right? Like that post that 70s show or like that era that's probably like the top end of his mm-hmm. career and madonna i would feel like mid 2000s or early 2000s uh it says mid mid 2000s madonna that is a i don't think that's a premium star power madonna i think that's like the decline madonna this is i think after the vma's kiss Oh, was that a- okay? Because I think that was early, so this is mid. Because I know she had a huge, like, basically, um, public backlash after like, like nine eleven, and she released like some music video stuff that everyone thought was um in poor taste. We'll say. 
Maybe. I, I don't, I, don't know. I mean, I like Madonna's music. Not all of it. I'm not like a huge fan or anything. Uh, are you a material girl? A oh, fan of the Vogue? Well, I mean, how can you not like material girl Vogue? Um, like a virgin. Uh, like a virgin. See, I can't name a lot of Peter Lorre movies, but I can go through some Madonna tracks. I, I guess. But I mean, it's just. So we have her mid 2000s. And it's like, so Ilsa would be older than Rick in this remake because Rick's older than Ilsa in Casablanca. Yeah, and the, but you gotta remember, like, Madonna's always been one of those people that's looked kind of young. Again, not in 2020, mm-hmm. not in the year of our Lord 2023, but like in 2000, whatever, eh, you put enough makeup on her, she could probably pass a little bit younger, no. but not like as young as, what, 20 something, 30 something Ashton Kutcher? Yeah, it's like, no, because. That's how we get Ilsa in this movie, where you could tell that she is so much younger than Rick. And they have that whole scene where they're talking about, oh, what were you doing 10 years ago? And she goes, oh, I was getting braces. What about you? And he was like, oh, I was getting a job. So Yeah. Ashton Kutcher, what were you doing 10 years ago? He was like, I was in high school. What were you doing? She was like, I was on my third marriage. Uh just released, you know, my fifth number one single. You know, just, uh, just you know, living my best life. A mountain of Grammys. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, you, you must have hit real young. No, no, mid, mid to late twenties. You know, like she says that she starts knitting him like a sweater in her old, old lady glasses. Yeah, but it was a thing where she was really determined to do this and took this to like just about every studio, and every studio was like, nope. They looked at it, and I, I don't know who. Who um who's quoted as saying this, but it says the film is deemed untouchable. But I think that's one that's true. Yes. Like Casablanca is actually considered one of the greatest movies of all time, and that's like a wide standing opinion. That's not like pretentious film critics. That's like no. like normal audiences. That's even like you know directors think it's a great film, critics think it's a great film, audiences think it's a great film, and, everyone and, thinks it's a great film. And you know how it, it it truly is a great film when the actors that are making the film at the time don't think it's going to be a great film. Bogart said it, I don't remember which actor he said it to, but he goes, "Man, he goes, I am stuck in the worst picture I've ever, you know, had to, you know, make or it's going to release and it's like it's, you know, gone on for so many movies where actors are just like, oh, man, this thing is going to tank. And then it comes out and it's just a masterpiece. I mean, Paul Heinrich thought this was going to sink his career. Yeah. He thought when he did it, everyone would think he couldn't act because mm-hmm. in all the scenes he's in, he's like, oh, I just have to play the stoic, like, guy. You mean I don't emote in any scene I'm in? Oh, my God. Everyone's going to think I'm an, I'm a non-actor. And then he's like, oh, no, you're like the linchpin of the entire story. But um, and Ingrid Bergman actually said that Paul Heinrich was a prima donna. It doesn't surprise me. Yeah, because he he had something against Bogart. He was like, oh, yeah, you know, this American, whatever. And he was the- probably like, I'm way more handsome than that Bogart fellow. I mean, look at this sick scar and this cool streak of white hair in my makeup. I mean, it is pretty cool. But Ingrid Bergman's like, yeah, him, prima donna. And then she's like, how did I study up for this film and getting to know Bogart? She's like, I watched the Maltese Falcon uh, like uh, over and over and over again just to pick up on who this man is. And it's like, even if you watch that, he's still, you know, he's got like a bunch of mysteries just locked up in there. I think that's the great thing about the Bogart acting. And we're going to get into that because this is, is Bogart. Month. Yeah. But Bogart in 
every role, at least I've seen him in, he seems like a guy that just carries a lot of baggage mm-hmm. just from how he looks. He looks like a guy that's lived a life, that's had, like, a lot of affairs that have ended poorly. He's had a lot of jobs that he had to drop. He looks like somebody who's been in a fight one too many times. He looks like a guy that's lived a life, which is surprising because I think in real life, he was like some like snooty rich kid growing up. And then, no. oh no, you can look that up. His name is Humphrey Bogart. His family was balling out of his mind growing up he was a rich kid growing up no i mean he was in the navy at a really young age he used to you know interesting we'll get into this you know with the the chess board in the movie mm-hmm. but he, i guess apparently he was really good at chess and when he was a kid he would bet you know other people hey um you know i'll play you chess for like a penny or two pennies and they would think oh this kid doesn't know what he's doing and he'd be like no, sucker, I know chess like nothing else. And just, you know, he would basically go around and, you know, make deals and kind of, you know, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll play you and just, you know, walk out with however much money he would make. So, which ties in with this movie and him in the casino and, you know, yeah, the house can afford to take that today. We'll do that. Let me help you out. Which my favorite scene in the movie when I... <laughs> uh, when when he, he gives in, you know, when he actually decides to stick his neck out for somebody. Yeah. And that's like the influence of Elsa, and it, it's a that's my favorite scene in the movie. But even before that scene, when um, Peter Lorre's character is taken away by the Nazis, and you know he's kind of like, you know, my hands are tied, I can't help you, but it's in his eyes that you can see that he is just kind of heartbroken that he can't help a friend out. Because and, Rick sticks his neck out for no one. For no one, but it's just. That's the genius of Bogart, where he, you know, he can act with just his eyes. You get so much emotion. Oh, yeah. I, and I know we, we we kind of moved on from it, but I really wanted to round back to this, like, just real quick. Like, Madonna? Real, real quick. Yeah, the Madonna thing. Yeah. Okay, so Ashton Kutcher, that's a non-starter, right? Who do you think could have played Rick if they if this movie got into to screen? Because I have one person In that I think... In 2000s? Sure. We'll go with it. We'll go with at the time. I have one person that I think could have done it, but I I don't know if it would have been too much, too obvious of a choice. I think I have somebody too, but I don't know how good his American accent is. Ooh, a foreigner. Mm-hmm. Okay, you go, George Clooney. Okay, that would be good. I, the whole reason is because he he seems like somebody who could play this kind of classical Hollywood role. And that again, that's like the whole crux of the joke of um, Hail Caesar, the Coen Brothers movie, yeah. is oh yeah, George Clooney just looks like a guy that would be a famous '40s movie star. Yeah, and I think he could do it. I've seen him play these kind of characters with chips on their shoulder that looks great in a tux. Looks good in a tuxedo. Watch Batman if you don't mm. believe me. He doesn't look good in the bat suit, but hey, he looks good in a tuxedo. Bat nipples. Bat nipples that's oh are you ready for batman uh month this year when we get to talk about all the bad bat sequels well i mean are we doing a batman month there's no new batman movie coming out Ah, that's true that's true i wish there was then we could talk about bat nipples we could but i think george clooney could have done a pretty good rick if they want to keep madonna in because i think that age difference is closer yeah so that would have looked better but that's what i'm feeling that's what, interesting i li- I like that choice yeah what about you because you picked somebody non non-american for no the most american of roles yes for you know rick's american cafe 
Uh, yeah. um, I was actually thinking Liam Neeson. Ooh, that would have been interesting. Because he's got that kind of you know dark brooding about himself. It's true. And I, I've seen his American accent though. It's rough in places. Um, granted, my exposure is Dark Man, where he that movie in and out of it. from what the nineties. It was his first American role. It was the movie he made with Sam Raimi uh, before he did Schindler's List, like five years later. Yeah. Could, could you imagine? You are Liam Neeson's talent agent, and you're like, look, Liam, baby, I know the last time you were in America, you were in this weird gonzo superhero movie that kind of didn't do well and made you look like a like a, sh- a schmuck, but I got one for you, Schindler's List. Oh, no God. one's going to make fun of you and say, oh, Dark Man saves the Jews. I swear, Liam, it's going to be fine. Oh, Schindler's List just really... Oh, just tears your heart apart. Never seen it. Oh, it's, it's one of those movies Don't. that's on the list to watch because uh, it's everyone says it's Spielberg's best movie. Uh, and I'm going to watch it eventually. But Don't I've watch it. It's going it. to break your heart. I mean, we uh, I saw it in high school in my history class, and we actually had to have uh, permission slip signed to watch it. And I was just like, really? We got to, you know, have our parents, you know, OK it that we're watching a movie and then. All of us are sitting in class. Yeah, I don't think there was a dry eye in the class. Do you know what movie I had to get a permission slip signed for for my history class? Uh, I think I know. I think you've told me this before. Wasn't it um, with Tom Hanks? Uh, Tom Hanks? Same in Private Ryan? Yes. No, it wasn't Same in Private Ryan. It was Gladiator. Gladiator? In my, in my uh, history class, we were doing ancient history. This is like in middle school. And my teacher was like, hey guys, get your permission slip signed. We're going to watch a movie that's totally going to show you what like life was like <laughs> in Rome and it's going to be all cool because like you could probably guess like the year I was in yeah. school for this. But no, my teacher just really wanted to watch fucking Gladiator. I mean, that's another good movie. Gladiator is a banger and so many people just do not like that movie and I don't know why. Well, it's it, okay. Not do not like that movie, but it's a Ridley Scott movie. Ridley Scott made Alien, yeah. Blade Runner, uh, like a bunch of great movies. And people are like, I mean, it's like okay for a Ridley Scott movie, but it's not great or nothing. And I'm like, guys, like, we get it. He made fucking Blade Runner. Just Gladiator's a good movie. I like Gladiator. So do I. It has the Joker in it. It does. And the Joker is fighting, you know, not fat Russell Crowe. It was a very short window we had him. Of, of ripped Russell Crowe. Right, right. So, yeah, that was my, you know, 2000s pick for Rick. Liam Neeson. I think that works pretty well. I, I think there's also an interesting facet, because would this be a period drama? Would it still be World War II? Would it be updated for, like, you know, the, like, Iraq conflict that was going on? No, I this is... A remake, so I'm assuming we're gonna nineteen forty one or whatever. We're gonna go back to the forties and you know just redo this in color. You know, I don't. I can't see this in color either. Yeah, because on here it says she pitched the idea, so there's no script, so there's nothing floating out there. You know, in the deep web of a Madonna Casablanca script, you that we know of. You know that was when Madonna realized she wasn't famous enough anymore. 
when she's like, you mean I I was able to get what is it, uh, bathtubs of Broadway greenlit on name alone, but you won't let me get this movie? What the hell is this? Because all of film lovers in society was like, absolutely not. We have done remakes for just about everything else, not this movie. Uh, Never. But um, but yeah, yeah, Castle is great. It uh, is. I, I also, you know, when you said they were going to redo it in color, and I... I'm assuming. Yeah. I mean, I made the comment that this movie is fucking beautiful for the black and white stuff, because it uses those, like, noir shadows, mm-hmm. and it's using those, like, deep focus. It looks like a movie that's... It looks like a movie that's, like, ten years ahead of its time. And it's actually a reason why we don't see Bogart wearing a hat too much in the movie, because they don't want people to feel like... Oh, we're watching a Bogart noir movie. He's a gangster in this movie. And it's just like, you know, it's like, it's so beautifully shot. I think one of my favorite scenes of the movie is when Rick's drinking alone and he's having that moment and Ilsa opens the door and the spotlight just hits her from the back and just illuminates her. And you've got the contrast of the bright white light, the darkness of the club, and she's, you know, in that white headscarf and it's just... It's so moody and atmospheric. It's the dark night of the soul. And for him, it's like, you know, it's this angel that's, you know, just showed up and he's just... I've been in the dark for so long and she's here. She's back. Ah, man. the, The visual language of this movie is also just like on point yeah because i know the director uh what is it, michael curtis yeah michael curtis because he he directed like a, a couple of like like s tier movies right like i know he wasn't a slouch no um i think he's hungarian uh i believe so yeah he's in a hungarian he's a hungarian director he directed you know casablanca uh mildred pierce yankee doodle Ooh. dandy white christmas angel 30 faces like he he has a pedigree, yeah. right? But he was one of these, act- like, not actors, directors that kind of got known as, oh, he's a director that has, like, no genre. Yeah. Like, he's not like David Lean that got known as, oh, he's the epic director. If you need a three-hour movie to look more expensive than most countries, you get David Lean. Yeah. Or it's not like Lucas after Star Wars where, mm-hmm. oh, he's the guy that does the big sci-fi movies. He only does Star Wars. Yeah. Or, like... Hope or Scorsese, where they make really good gangster movies, so they're just gonna make gangster movies. John Carpenter, sci-fi horror genre films, things like that. But he was a director that got known as being like didn't really confine to a specific genre. Like Casablanca is a melodrama, Yankee Doodle Dane is a musical. Um, White Christmas is another like musical, but it's an army flick. Angel Thirty Faces is a gangster movie. Like, he, he worked in a lot of genres for, like, early Hollywood. It's just interesting to see the scale of him. Because, I mean, you see Casablanca, and, you know, that is iconic in its own way. Uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy, it's this, you know, really big, larger-than-life movie. And then White Christmas, it's in color, and you've got Bing Crosby, and it's just, you know, larger, larger-than-life. It's like, wow, this all came from the same person. He's got so much versatility to him. And that's kind of what I wanted to get to, because in Casablanca, you really need kind of a chameleon-like director mm-hmm. to make this, because you have to balance these very specific um, beats, right? Because yeah. it, it, it is a romantic melodrama. Mm-hmm. Like, at its heart, it, that's what it is. It's romantic melodrama that's implementing tropes of the spy political thriller mm-hmm. that's also using noir, caroscuro lighting in certain sections. Yeah. 
then you also are utilizing a a musical motif and you have to direct that so the music musical sections don't feel like a pop gumball musical mm-hmm. you know and and you're not only doing that you're transposing that with this being a war film in without showing any battles like we see the not the conquering i guess but the um takeover of paris yeah and we never see a gun we never see a nazi like stomping into paris we just they're they're just announcing the gestapo in german but we don't see anybody we see the the tanks and the soldiers walking through the countrysides as they're making their way to paris but but we get the the big trucks with the gestapo that's you know making the the announcements. The announcements that, you know, they're miles away, this is happening. Basically, get ready. Exactly. And he's even melding in some newsreel footage mm-hmm. to, like, even sell it a little bit harder. And it's so interesting because if you gave this movie to, like, Frank Capra, that it would be a totally different movie. Yeah. It would be a lot more, like, chipper, upbeat. You would have a lot more of a, oh, like, that warm, fuzzy feeling inside, like, they probably get together at the end of this uh, yeah. uh, Frank Capra movie. Or if this was like a Hitchcock film, like the romantic melodrama would be an afterthought to the political thrills he can get out of Renault and the sergeant, uh, Renault and the major doing their cat and mouse like back and forth mm-hmm. with these papers. Like, I feel like you needed someone like um, Michael Curtis as the director here to really sell it. Yeah, and he was also very in touch with details too it wasn't just you know okay make it pretty or make it you know dark and noir and you know gritty it's just he really had his hand in everything and there was a funny story that i read uh, about him that you know with his with his deep hungarian accent people kind of had a hard time understanding what he was saying so he had told one of like the set designers you know for this scene i i want a poodle for this scene so this guy leaves for an hour and comes back and he's like, you know, where have you been? And he goes, well, I went around. I couldn't find a poodle anywhere. And he goes, no, I wanted a poodle of water so we could reflect, you know, something out of the puddle of water. And I was just like, oh, bruh, this is fucking awesome. You you just love any t- you love all those misunderstandings because of accent gags. I mean, they're funny. They are funny. I, I mean, I, I it's, love... It's classic Marx Brothers. You know? Yeah, but, but I love seeing, you know, just those little details of humor, but also, yeah, you know, from a photographer standpoint, if you have a puddle of water that you're reflecting something off of, it, it makes a building or a scene that much more beautiful. I mean, the greatest example of that is um, Carol Reed's The Third Man. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like... Man, why does this movie look so good? It's probably the same reason why it's constantly covered in dripping water yeah. all over the cobblestones. Light reflects really well off of wet stone, wet ground. Mm-hmm. It adds depth. It makes everything look way moodier. But I, I think that's something I want to just point out about you know Michael Curtis, this uh, chameleon-like director. Yeah. Um, which I don't know if I'm overstating that, but he was a really good director. I mean, fuck, he made Casablanca for God's sakes. Yeah. Um, and the other, I guess, um, the other point that I kind of wanted to get to while we're, oh, well, fuck me. We're kind of getting kind of deep into this episode. (laughs) Uh, the other point I kind of wanted to bring up about the movie is that this, this movie is kind of taught as the perfect screenplay, Mm -hmm. the perfect structure, um, because you have all, you have the perfect setup 
that tells you everything you need to know about the characters. You know, Rick's like, I stick my neck out for no one. And that sets up, well, the whole point of the movie is, will he stick his neck out to save the woman he loves and... The man that she loves. And the man that she loves. But then that's the thing. Oh, if he doesn't save the woman, then her husband is going to get taken away and he'll have her. Yeah. And it's like, that's an interesting tweak in the plan mm-hmm. and as that develops with these supporting characters and the world around Casablanca it like that like that's the thing about the movie that's so brilliant is the structure and how it builds its story mm-hmm. um and I wanted to know your your thoughts on on the movie you know as the screenplay as it were oh yeah I mean it's a really strong screenplay you could see where like if Hitchcock were to take this over yeah he totally let something happen to Laszlo so that the two of them could be together and then you would later find out how he kind of compromised Laszlo and the the characters would fall apart. There'd be a thrilling chase to get to the airport as they're running from the Nazis. Which we do get. But it was just kind of like, it's Casablanca, it's not that big. How is it taking you this long to get to the airport? He was going from across town, you know, had to stop, uh, get a coffee or something. He had all the red lights, just, you know, just couldn't get there on time. It was one of those nights. But, yeah, it's just one of these movies where you could see, you know, I could act on that bit of selfishness to make myself happy. But it's, you know, I got to do what's right in, you know, my heart, what's right for her, and basically what's right for the world. And it just, oh, Oh, hits me in the feels. You got to get on that plane, kid. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon you'll regret it for the rest of your life. Yeah, I, I can't do a good Bogart. I'm going to work on it as the month goes on to try and, you know, hone down my Bogart impression. But yeah, and you're going to get a lot of, a lot of, you know, Peter Griffin. See? See? Yeah, look here, see? See, I can do, um, oh God, uh, Edward G. Robinson. I can do Edward G. Robinson, you know, look here, see? Like, I can do that. Can't do Bogart. Can't do Bogart. No, I mean, Bogart's got a unique voice. I mean, it's a three-pack-a-day, you know, East Coast voice. It ain't that hard. But well, back I'm, to Casablanca. Yes. Yes. Uh, interesting. So, remember, we're talking about Psycho and how the first scene filmed was Janet Lee in the bed with uh, Sam Loomis, and they had just met, and it was like, you know, you need to basically fake this chemistry even though you guys have just really met and we're getting into this really intimate scene yeah yeah that was in our um psycho episode from last month yeah yeah so in this movie the first scene that was filmed was actually the paris flashback scene of the two of them in love in paris you see now that makes sense because you need them to have a foundation of this loving romance and this uh like intimate relationship before you see Casablanca and then they have to act like that loving relationship was over mm-hmm. and now it's only just now rekindled. Like that actually is like good, well, I guess pacing or direction to yeah. get the actors involved. Yeah, because you know by that time, you know, when you, we've seen them and this relationship is so strained and even though it's been years, the the passion is still there even though Rick is still incredibly angry that she broke his heart. But it's just interesting to see that, you know, they don't really know each other and they're thrown into you're in love and, you know, everything is so bright and so beautiful and 
oh no, your husband is actually still alive and you you have this conflict of do I go back to my husband or do I stick with this guy that I'm really in love with? And it's just like, oh, that's that's kind of cool to see the parallels of these two scenes. There's a lot of parallels in the movie that I think yeah. work very well. Um, but we are into about an hour into this. Is there anything else you wanted to get to before we wrap up? Um, I mean, it brought up the funny story. You know, there's a lot of you know things that this movie is on the AFI top 100 list because I mean, mm-hmm. AFI has lists for a billion things. Yeah, I really wish they would release their top 100 all time list. I mean, the last one they do is like 07, I think. I think so. Yeah, and I know Science Sound does one like every 10 years. And th- this one is on the Science Sound top 100 list, both the critics and directors. But this movie has six quotes on the top 100 list. Okay, I'm, I'm going to take a shot. Uh, All right, let's, let's see if you can do it. Okay. Uh, here's looking at you, kid. Obviously, that's on there. Yeah, that's number five. Uh, I stick my neck out for no one. Uh, let's see. No. No? Oh, God. Uh. Is it maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon for the rest of your life? Like his closing line, I guess. Uh, only only one line. Okay. Um, this looks like the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Yeah, that's number twenty-eight on the list. Okay, fuck. How many? So I have what? Two left? Three left? Well, let's uh, see. You had uh, here's looking at you, uh, beautiful friendship, and the last um, the last big monologue of the movie. Yeah, you have that. So you have two left. Uh, shit. Uh, play it again, Sam. But no, no, no. That's not actually in the movie. No, it's on the list, but it, that's not how it's phrased. It's the Mandela effect. Yeah, because it's not it's, play it again, Sam. It's play it for me, Sam. It's play it, Sam. Play it, play Sam. Play it as time goes by. That's on the list at 28. Okay, so I got one more. You have two more. Two more? Fuck me. Uh, there's gotta be... Oh, there's got to be some fucking major ones I'm missing. Well, um, one major one that we hear all the time now. Round up the usual suspects. That's from... Th- oh, mm-hmm. Okay, I know it's from this movie. I watched the fucking movie. But is that really the first time that's been used? I think maybe it's just the first time it's been used in a big movie. Oh, it it's was the kind most of... famous version yeah. of it. So gotcha. it's kind of like, oh, cool, let's use that in ours. But also, how we started this episode of all the gin joints and, and all, all the, the towns, towns and, and all, all the world. She had a walk into, into mine. mine. Which, okay, I was watching something, and they talked about that in Casablanca, and that is a very noted thing about Rick's character, because in all the gin joints, in all the world, she had to walk into mine, because of course she had to walk into Mm -hmm. Rick's. If she ever wanted to get out of Europe, she would have to walk into Rick's cafe, Yeah, because he set himself up to where if she ever, ever tried to leave, he would see her again. Yeah. It's like he he lost her and he has done everything in his power to set up a situation where if the girl he has always loved ever tries to leave Europe, he will be there to find her because he is and he will wait for her. And I think that's another beautiful thing about that line. That's again, goes in the script, the double meaning and is the setup for his character. You know, he sticks his neck out for nobody, but he'll wait forever for Elsa. Which is why we get the, you know, the final quote from the end of the movie will always have Paris. And that's why it's so important, you know, they finally get to say goodbye to each other. It's not, I couldn't say goodbye because it was going to kill me and I know you wouldn't have let me go. But they have, you know, we'll always have Paris. And if we didn't, we have it now. 
And it's just, it makes that scene much stronger and just showing Rick, you know what? Your wife was never in love with me. She just did this to get the letters to save you, even though the two of them know. The love is very much there, but you're better off in a safer place than here with me. This is a great movie. It is. We're starting the year off right with Casablanca. How could we not? But what are we watching next week? Next week, we are watching a film that Dean has not seen yet. Oh, uh, I mean, there, there's a few of those. There is, but this one's a big film. Hopefully, Dean likes it. Mm. It is The African Queen. Okay, I've never seen this movie. I know Bogart and Catherine Hepburn are That's in it. That's correct. And that is all I know about it. I know literally nothing about the story. I don't know who the African Queen is. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, if anybody wanted to watch that or listen to that episode, where could they go? If you want to listen to us on a different platform than you currently are, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. You can go to our YouTube channel, The Film Vault. That is The Film Vault on YouTube. We release video versions of these podcasts every week in my slideshow style because I'm too lazy to record these. And you can like, comment, and subscribe and let us know what you think. But if you wanted to follow us on social media, where can they go? You can find us on Instagram at the Film Club Podcast, where we post daily stories, upcoming episodes, trivia, and our random adventures that we go on. And with that, here's looking at you, kid. See you next week. At the Film Club.